I'm going to start off this morning with a little bit of a disclaimer. <clears throat> you know, sometimes we, we have a passage of Scripture or a sermon in which it's really easy to look at the other guy and think about, okay, this applies to them in such and such a way. Today's, I don't want you to think of anyone but yourself. I want you to be a little bit selfish, which I know normally is not a good thing. But as we get into this, I, I have to admit in studying and in preparing and, and getting ready and, and some of my interactions this, this week, it was brought to my attention, you know, Isaac, this section is about you. And you need to, to grab onto this and hang on to it and apply it to you. So we're going to be going through this section of, of Mark as we've been you know, working little by little all the way through the Gospel of Mark. Um, but there are some, some principles and lessons and things in this that I think each one of us in here needs to think not about somebody else, but about how does this apply to me? What am I supposed to do with this? I've got the, the question, what does it take to be a disciple? If you claim to be a follower of Christ, what does that mean? What does that take? What does that require? That's what we're going to get into. And like I said, I've got a little disclaimer. This isn't easy. This isn't light and fluffy. This is actually potentially a little bit scary. It's a very short passage. It's a fairly, fairly simple in, in what it says and how it says it, but then the application of it, the, the putting it into practice, we're going to find is actually rather difficult and rather challenging. I, uh, I often like to think about, okay, you know, what, what kind of images pop to my mind as I'm, as I'm studying through Scripture? And, and I think most of you are aware there was recently a, a major sporting event that took place last week. Okay, you're, you're aware of something that happened. Now, I don't reference sports very often, but if you pay any attention to any kind, you'll know what a fan is, right? Who, who knows what a fan is? Okay, now you start picturing a fan, and I'm going to guess that you've got different ideas and different images that pop to your mind. You've, you've got some of those people who just show up to every game, right? What, whatever the sport, whatever the activity, they, they're always there. They have their season pass, their, their ticket to the same seats every time, and they are constantly there. You've got those other people that get all decked out, whether it's wearing their team's jerseys and, and hats and pants or not wearing those and painting themselves or whatever it might be. You've got... Fans. That, that word, that idea of fan, comes from fanatics. And you, you start thinking about a fanatic. What, what is a fanatic for a sports team? Well, generally speaking, we, we think that way, and we're thinking of someone who goes to every game, who spends money on the getting there, and, and not just the home games, not just the local ones that are easy to get to, but the ones where they have to travel a long distance. I, I remember when I was in high school, my buddy played on the football team, and I made it a point to go to every single game that he played. And, and my friends and I, we didn't just go to the games, we were the loudmouths who you know, yelled and cheered. Okay, 
you have this idea of what a, what a fan is, what a fanatic is. That's kind of what we're going to be getting into with this. That, that idea, not of just someone who you know, maybe occasionally shows up to a game or, or might watch it. When, when it comes to football, the, that was the sporting event that happened about a week ago, the great big major one. I don't know that I watched more than one game this whole season because just I'm not a fan. I'm not a, I'm not a fanatic of football. And I, I prove that by my actions. But others definitely are. Well, I think with that, with that picture, with that idea in your, in your heads, uh, hopefully that helps make this passage make a little bit more sense. We've just seen Jesus make a, a declaration, and he's been interacting with his, his disciples, and um, we're actually getting into what, what seems to be a, a set of three repeating uh, interactions. Jesus is going to say, I'm, a, I'm about to be put to death. He's going to make a prediction about his, his suffering, about his death. Um, we saw the first one happen in chapter 8, verse 31. We're going to see another one happen towards the end of chapter 9 in verse 30. And then a third time he's going to do that, making sure that everybody knows as Messiah, as, as the Christ, as Jesus, he's going to suffer. That's, that's what he's here for. The third one's going to take place in chapter 10 and verse 32. Now, after each of those three, the disciples come on the scene and have an interaction with him. And Mark doesn't necessarily paint them in the, in the nicest of lights. We, we see some of their failings, some of their, their questioning of Jesus. You'll recall last week we looked at, at Peter's response. Uh, you know, Jesus had asked them, who do you say that I am? Well, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are, you are the Messiah, the promised one of the Old Testament. You are... God himself. And, and Jesus says, you're right. Exactly. And then he begins to tell that he's going to suffer and die. And what does Peter do? What, what was his response? He rebukes Jesus. And, and it's not just a questioning like, uh, what? I don't think so. No, he, he, this is Isaac picturing. Gets up in his face and says, no way, that's not going to happen. Now, I don't know that he actually got in his face. But he rebukes him. He gets after him. He's like, no. We're going to see this cycle happen three times where Jesus makes a declaration about himself. The disciples don't necessarily get it, and then Jesus is going to teach them something. Well, that's what we're about to get into, is what is Jesus teaching in this, this iteration of that cycle? And we're, we're going to find the biggest thing is that what they were expecting of the Messiah is not who Jesus really was. I mentioned last week that we are kind of at the hinge point of the book of Mark. Up to this point, we've seen Jesus over and over and over again prove he is the Messiah. He fulfilled prophecy. He worked miracles. He taught the people. He, he did everything that was to be expected to show that he is the Christ. And last week, we saw Peter proclaimed that. You are the Christ. Exactly. That's what we've been needing to get from the whole first half of the book of Mark. Who is Jesus? That question came up over and over and over again, and I, I asked it over and over and over again. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Who is this person that we're looking at? He is man, and he is God himself. 
He is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. He is the Christ. Now we're kind of getting to that point where I like to phrase it as, so what? What difference does that make? What do we do with that? We know who he is, but, but does that matter? Should that do something? Should that have some impact? Or do we just assent to it as, as knowledge? Yep, good, good to know, very interesting, and move on. Well, this section is going to deal with that idea. It starts off that he summoned the crowd with his disciples. So I, I think right from the get-go, we need to understand, okay, he, he had this interaction with just his disciples, but now he's getting the crowds again. He's bringing more people in. This isn't something that only his disciples needed to know about. This is something that was applicable to all. That they all needed to hear this and understand what he is about to teach. And he's going to go through a series of, of statements. It's actually, he's going to set up a conditional statement. That, that first word there, if, if anyone wishes, that, that's a conditional and so he's, he's laying this out to the crowds. He's letting everybody know, not just his disciples, but letting everybody know, this is something that you need to, to pay attention to, to be aware of. We've seen he is the Messiah. So what? What are we going to do with that? If, it's a condition, it's a question. If anyone, which this is where I'm saying, don't, don't think about if my neighbor down the street wants to do this, this is what he needs. No. I'm saying, be a little selfish, if I want to follow Christ, what does that look like? What does that need? What is, what is required of me? If, if anyone wishes to come after me, now, that, that word wishes, is, it, it is actually a theologically packed word. It's going to come up throughout Scripture quite a bit. Um, it's even going to be used of God, in which God desires or wishes for everyone to be saved. That comes out of 1 Timothy 2, 4. Or when we're making plans, we shouldn't say, you know, I'm going to go do this, I'm going to go do that. But if the Lord wills, it's the same word, the same idea. If God wishes for it to happen, then I'm going to go. That, that one comes out of uh, James chapter 4, verse 15. And so this, this word comes up a lot. The idea is to desire. Now, now, we think of wishing in a lot of different ways. If, if I say, you know, I, I wish I had a million dollars, I'm, I'm going to guess most of you have that, that wish and desire, right? I mean, that, that's, everybody would like that. But then, if I were to say, I wish that I could have lunch this afternoon, that's a little bit different, right? I mean, a million dollars, that's, that's something that, you know, everybody wishes. If wishes were fishes, the whole world would swim or something. I don't remember what that quote is. But, you know, that's something that's, that's just out there. We, we say wish for that. But if I say, I, I desire to have lunch this afternoon, well, that's a little bit different because it's a concrete thing, and I'm going to take certain steps to make sure that that happens. The, this idea of wish that's listed here... What the word that he's using is not just this, this way out there, I, I wish for world peace, I wish for you know, all of these good things, but an actual, I'm going to take some action to achieve it. I desire something, and as a result, I'm going to do something about it. Do you, do you see the difference in, in the way that we use that term wish? This is, this is an actual desire and intention to see something happen. Not, not just like, 
at a, at a birthday party, a kid wishes for something and blows out the candles. They're not going to do things to achieve that. This is something that actually requires an action. I desire, and therefore I'm going to take action to achieve it. I mentioned that this is used with, with God. God has a desire to see all men saved. So what did he do? He sent Jesus. He sent his only begotten son so that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God took action to achieve his desires, to make that a possibility. That's the kind of, it's a, it's a stronger word than just, I hope, or I, I, it would be nice if this were to occur. This is an actual intentioned desire to t- for something to take place. So bear that in mind. If someone, if you, wish to come after Jesus, wishes to follow him, what does that take? What does that require? You know, you, you may say, I, I hope you say, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. Well, what does that mean? What does that take? If you, if you desire that, if that's what you want to be, which I highly recommend, I think it's a good thing, if that's what you want to be, what, what is necessary? What comes after that? He must deny himself. What does it mean to deny yourself? What, what, what does that mean? Anybody? Did anybody look it up or, or pre-study it or anything? Okay, take yourself off the throne. Do what? Re, like rebuke yourself? Uh, a, a little bit? Disown? Okay. We have, we have a really, really good example of what it is to deny. We're, we're actually going to see it in a few chapters, so I don't want to spend too much time digging into it. But how many of you remember when uh, Peter has an opportunity to proclaim Christ, but instead he denies him, not once, not twice, three times? That's the same idea. Je- uh, yeah, Jesus lets it be known, Peter, you're going to deny me. And, and again, Peter's like, no, no, that's not going to happen. I'm not going to do... And yet, that's exactly what Peter does. That's the same idea. What does he do? He disowns Jesus. He says, nope, nope, never knew him. I have no clue who you're talking about. I, I don't know about that. that. That's this idea that's going on here. If anyone wishes or desires or, or makes the decision that I'm going to take the action necessary to follow Christ, step one, he must deny himself. He must disown himself, take himself off the throne, put himself to the side. Your, your wants, your desires, your own intentions don't mean anything because you're putting Christ on the throne. You're affirming Christ. You're, you're connecting yourself with him instead of yourself, your own wants and desires. But it goes a step beyond that. It, it says, and Take up his cross. What does that mean? What, what is a cross? It's a piece of wood, right? No, there, there, there's something more than that. It's what? A burden? A symbol of suffering? Okay, how, how many of you have ever heard uh, you know, somebody talk about something difficult and, they, oh, it's just my cross to bear? Okay, that's not what this is talking about. I'm, I'm just going to be real blunt. This, this is not talking about my neighbor who makes noise at, at 11.30 at night, and that, that's just my cross to bear. That's not what we're talking about here. 
in, in this context, in this environment, in this culture, a cross was an implement of death. This was not just the idea of, oh, this is, this is something difficult. No, when someone went to the cross, they died. There was no getting off the cross. There was no um, you know, next step afterwards. The, the Romans were really, really good at executing people. They, would, they had all kinds of different means and methods, and the cross was one of those that was so severe, so harsh, that they had certain rules about who could and couldn't be executed in that way because it entailed so much suffering and pain and guaranteed death. When, when we think of this as just, you know, oh, it's, it's this irritation, this minor inconvenience, that is not what Mark is talking about. That's not what the original audience would have heard or understood that Jesus was saying. He's saying, if you want to follow me, you have to give up all your rights, all your privileges, lay all that aside, deny yourself, and die. Die to yourself. Be ready to take up that cross. Be executed on my behalf. Now that, that is a huge statement. Now, we're so used to hearing it and so used to reading it that we could easily just read through that, glance past it, and not think much about it. But I want to encourage you, slow down, pause for a moment. If I want to be a follower of Christ, I have to deny myself, my wants, my privileges, my desires, and die to myself, die to all that I think is good and important, so that I can live for him. Uh, that's ultimately what we're going to get to, so that I can live for him. But I have to give up myself? I, I started with the question, what does it take to be a disciple? Jesus is, is laying this out, and he's not pulling any punches. And he's not starting soft and gentle, like, well, you know, it's... No, he, he's going straight at it. If anyone has this desire, if you want to follow me, you've got to give up yourself. You've got to die to self. This is huge. This is massive. This is way beyond a simple idea of, you know, maybe every now and then studying something or listening or being a part of. This is a full-on giving up all of who you are to follow him. And then it, it, this verse 34 concludes with, and follow me. So if you want to come after, if you want to follow Jesus, you have to give up yourself, die to self, and follow. And actually do that idea of, of coming after him. Now, in, in the context of, of what we're looking at, Mark is showing us that Jesus is getting ready to turn his attention from uh, that area of Galilee in the northern part of Israel. He's getting ready to head south to Jerusalem. And Jesus knows why he's going there. He knows what's coming. And, and part of what he's saying is, hey, if you want to be my disciples, if you want to follow me, and he's telling the whole crowd this, you've got to be ready to die. Because that's exactly where Jesus is going. Physically, in, in just a short period of time. It, it'll be several more chapters before we get there. But he's on his way to Jerusalem to confront the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, and then he's going to be executed. He's going on the cross, the literal cross, and he knows it. 
And he's already said, I have to suffer. We, we saw last week in the, in the section right before this, I think it was in verse 31, yeah, uh, chapter 8, verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. And Jesus is saying, hey, if you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, you want to come after me, if that's your goal and your desire, you have to give up yourself. You have to give up your rights and your privileges. You have to give up your entire life and follow me. That's what it's going to take. He's going to then go on and explain this a little bit with, with several, for this, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Now, we've, we've heard that one quite a bit. We're, we're probably fairly familiar with that idea. And yet, he's not going to let this slide easily. He's going to dig in and let us know exactly what he's talking about. You have to take up your cross. You have to deny yourself. You have to be ready to give up everything of who you are so that you can follow him. If you wish to, to follow him, if you wish to save your life, you're going to lose it. And, and interestingly, this, this idea of wishes here, it's the same thing. So if your desire is to follow him, that's going to have one thing. If your desire is to preserve your own life, that's going to be different. And so it's, it's a choice, it's a condition that you've got to make. That each of the people who are listening, this crowd, these disciples, that each of them were going to have to decide. What do you want to do? Do you want to save your own life? Do you want to preserve who you are, your own rights, your own privileges, your own way of doing things? Or do you want to follow Christ? That's, that's the contrast that's being set up here. If you want to save your own life, verse 35, if you, you desire, you wish to save your own life, what's going to be the result? You're going to lose it. You, you won't get it. No matter what you do, no matter what you try, if you want to preserve your own life, you're going to end up losing it. You're going to destroy it. But if you lose your life for my sake and the gospels, you will save it. But, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Well, that's, that's an interesting passage, an interesting phrase. What's, what's going on there? What is he talking about? Well, this idea goes back to that, that mindset, that desire, that plan, the thing of, of what you're working towards, what actions you're taking to accomplish this. If, if your focus and your goal is yourself, and I want to preserve my life, and I want to have my rights, and I want to do things my way, you're going to end up messing that up. Ultimately, the idea is you're going to destroy it, and, and it's not going to work out well. But if you want to give up your life, then you're going to save it. But the thing is, we have to understand, it's not just this idea of if you, if you want to live, you're going to die. If you die, you're going to live. No, there's more to it than that. There's, there's something specifically that we give our lives up for. That's the end of verse 35. What is it, what is it that we lose the, our lives for? For what purpose? For, for his sake. For the sake of Jesus and the Gospels. Now, 
again, this is one of those where we can really easily read it. And I, I say the gospel. What is, what is the gospel? What pops to your mind when I say the gospel? Okay, good news. Specifically, good news of Jesus. First uh, Corinthians 15. This is the gospel, the death, burial, and bodily resurrection of Christ. That Jesus came, lived, died, was buried, and rose again. That's, that's the gospel. That's what we think of as the gospel. And that's right, and that's accurate. That's probably not what they're looking at right now. What was the reason that Jesus came? You may have to turn back to chapter 1, verse 15 to find it. Jesus came proclaiming the gospel, the good news of what? Hmm? Well, go back to, to Mark chapter 1. If I can get my pages to turn. There we go. Uh, starting in 14. After John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel that I'm talking about, yes, it is the death, burial, and bodily resurrection of Christ. I'm not, I'm not saying that that's not included. But what Jesus has been teaching and proclaiming is this idea of the kingdom of God, the plan of God, the fulfillment of, of all of God's promises, of what he had in store, of what was going. If, if you... Give up your life for that, for God's purposes, for God's plan, for his, his ultimate intention, for the kingdom of God. That is the way to save it. And it's, it's an interesting, throughout, throughout this passage, he's going to be doing these comparisons, compare and contrast, and setting up a lot of uh, rhetorical phrases and, and questions and things of that nature. Um, if someone, back at the beginning of verse 35, if someone wants to save their life, they're going to lose it, but if they want to lose it for his sake and the sake of the gospel, not just to, to give it up willy-nilly for no good reason, but for the sake of what God intends, that's how they save it. He's then going to ask a question, verse 36. What, what profit is there? What benefit, what advantage is there to a man to gain the whole world? Now, that, that ought to sound familiar. Yet That actually ought to to clue something in your mind. Have we seen an offer of the whole world? Jesus actually dealt with this. Back in Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. He's being tempted by Satan, right? And Satan takes him up and shows him the, the kingdoms of the whole world. And he says, just, just bow the knee to me and I'm going to give all of this to you. I, that, that's what popped to my mind as I'm, as I'm going through this. To gain the whole world, to get everything. Now, we, we can easily have our goals and our desires, and, you know, I want that million dollars, or I want that whatever it is, that, that thing that I'm after. But, but he's setting up an even bigger, if I had everything, if I'm in charge, I'm the king of the whole world, and I lose my soul, what benefit is there? What profit is there? What, what value is there in that? Now, we, didn't, we didn't need to pause, step back just a moment. Um, in verse 35, he says, to save his life. Um, here, it forfeits his soul. Um, 
verse 30, 37 is going to use soul again. Um, this idea of life and soul. If, if you saw the, the pre-study guide that I, I had available on Wednesday, you notice that there, it's actually using the same word four times. And so soul and life are actually referring to the same thing. Now, this is, this is one of those where it can get a little bit um, head-scratching as you, you try and dig through. The word is psyche, and so it's, it's like the mind, the inner being. Um, I, I personally believe in what's called a trichotomy. It's the idea that man is made up of body, soul, and spirit. All right? This passage is not trying to elaborate on that, explain on that, other than to let us know that there's an immaterial portion of man, and that's what we're talking about. That, that inner being that defines who you are. Now, obviously, the way that you look is, is pretty obvious. We know I'm looking at this person or that person or those kinds of things. This is, this is a word that means something more than just that. And so he's going to be using that idea of the life that we have, your body being alive, but he's talking much deeper than that, much more than that, that inner person, that which makes you you. Your, your emotions, your will, your, your soul, all of that is what's, what's being pictured with this idea. Like I said, there's, there's a lot of argument about trichotomy, dichotomy. Is man made up of two parts or three parts? Or how does that all fit together? And, and those things, great discussion. I actually had an opportunity to discuss that a little bit before service started. That's not what he's dealing with. And so I don't, I don't want to get us too far on the rabbit trail because I have a tendency to do that. More than just say that... What he's referring to here is that inner man, that, that deep inside of you. Who, who are you really? Not, not who do you display to others, not who, what do you look like or your outside, but who are you? What is, what is your being? If your focus, back to 35, if your focus is preserving yourself, you're going to lose it. You're going to destroy it. You're going to get rid of that. But if you are willing to give that up, if you lose it, use your life for my sake and the gospel's, that's how you save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, to get all the material possessions, to have all the toys, and yet you lose who you are, lose your soul, lose that inner being? What, what value is there? What profit is there? What, what point is there to anything to lose that. Verse 37, for what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What, what are you worth, you individually? What, what value do you have? Life. Your life, okay. Why, why does life have value? Again, I could very easily go into a, a pretty good rabbit trail about you know the the value of life, the meaning of life, um, abortion being terrible and wrong, um, euthanasia being a bad thing, all of those things. That's based on this idea that life has value. Why? Because we're made in the image of God. God puts value on us. So what what would you be willing to give in exchange for your soul? What is your soul worth? Well, ultimately we find that Jesus says your soul is worth a whole lot because he's willing to die for you, for me. 
That's the exchange rate. This idea of, of exchange, it's connected with, it's not the same word, but it's connected with the idea of ransom. So what is your life worth for a ransom? What, is, what, what would you give in exchange for yourself? Well, ultimately, truly we find that we can't give enough. There is no offering, there is no gift, there is nothing that we can give. That's connected back to, then to verse 36. If you had the whole world, you had everything, and you, you tried to exchange that, that's not enough. That's not good enough. What does it take to save our souls? It takes Christ and the sacrifice that he is actually getting ready to give of himself. And that's, that's the direction that he's heading right now. His focus is turning from his teaching and his preaching throughout Galilee to him heading for the cross. He is on his way to Jerusalem to give up his life. And he is giving this lesson. He called all the crowds together to let them know if you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, this is what it's going to take. You've got to give up everything because it, it's got to go and be sacrificed for me. What profit is there if you gain the whole world? If you've got everything and yet lose your soul, there's of no value. There's no, no purpose. There's nothing there. What can you give in exchange for your own soul? There is nothing that you can give. There's no exchange that you have to offer to be able to exchange for your soul. He then goes into to 38 and, and almost changes um, the direction just a little bit from this idea of, of physical to actually even our mindset and what we're thinking about. He says, uh, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, there's a whole lot going on there. We're going we're gonna to dig into it uh, a lot here in just a moment. But I want, I want to pause, and, and I kind of summarized a little bit. I've got a, a almost so what right in the middle for us to, to think about and ponder. What is the result or the consequence of following Jesus? What happens if we, as it says, take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow him? See, for the disciples, for the, the listeners, for the crowd, this is about to get real. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, it doesn't just mean go to church or say the right things or give the right offerings or do these right things. This actually becomes giving up your whole life, who you are, being willing to give that over to God, denying yourself, and doing whatever it is that he calls you to. And that's like writing a blank check. I know we don't, we don't use checks that much anymore, but most of you who've, who've ever had a checkbook, if you write a blank check and sign it at the bottom, whoever you give that to can put in whatever they want to. That's this idea of giving up your life, of denying yourself, of taking up your cross, of losing your life for his sake, for the sake of the gospel. It's turning it all over to him, saying, it's yours. Do with it as you please. Like I said, it's not exactly easy. And it's really easy to say, man, I wish so-and-so would do that so that whatever. What about me? 
Am I willing to? Have I? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, this, this is going beyond then just actions. This is moving on to an idea of attitude, um, of a mindset, being ashamed. Really, this goes back to that idea of taking up the cross. See, I, I mentioned that the Romans, they were really good at killing people, right? At executions. They had a lot of different ways. The cross was a very shameful way. That, that was part of why they didn't allow it to be done to certain people because it wasn't just about killing someone. They, there were way more efficient ways of doing that. This, this idea was to also bring shame upon the individual, to make them look bad and to let everybody else know exactly who they were and what was going on. There's, there's a shame associated with the cross that, that we don't necessarily think of anymore. We, we are later on, uh, Paul is even going to talk about that the, the cross is a glorious thing. It's a wonderful thing because of what Christ has done. At this point, they're, they're looking at this idea of the cross and they're seeing the shame and the, the cultural significance of it and it is not a good, pleasant th idea or thing for them to be dealing with. And so... Jesus sets up this idea, whoever is ashamed of me, he's about to go to the cross. He knows what's coming. And he's, he's teaching them and letting them plainly know, like, Jesus is going to suffer and die, and it, shame will be heaped upon him. And this is not a good look. This is not going to be the popular thing. In fact, when we get to that point, you'll, you probably recall, everybody abandons him and runs away, Right? See, we, we think of the disciples as, as being like these great heroes of the faith, and they will become that. But they also have their issues and their problems, which is very encouraging to me. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will have that same response back, will also be ashamed of him. But when? Not, not in the present time, but when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Jesus is getting into some end times type ideas and concepts and pointing forward to ultimate um, conclusion of things. And this is a, an, an attitude and a decision and an action. All of this that comes in, and he's laying out a choice to his disciples and to the crowd and to the people who are there. And he's making it very clear and very plain you have a choice. You can follow me or you can not. It's entirely up to you. The decision is yours. And throughout scripture, we see that over and over and over again. Jesus doesn't force people to become his followers. He doesn't force them to, to become saved, to be Christians. He gives them the choice. And right here, he's laying it out. He's making it very simple. You want to follow me? This is what it is. It's an attitude, it's a mindset, it's the actions that you take, it's everything. And ultimately, it takes your life. Giving up your own rights, your own privileges, everything. Or, you can be ashamed of me. And that has its consequences, that has its results. And this choice is yours to make. But, he's making it very clear, if you're ashamed of me and my words in, in this life, 
in this current situation. And this, this idea of adulterous and sinful generation, um, there, that's kind of a loaded phrase of what's going on. He's pointing to some Old Testament prophecies about the, the way that the Messiah would be received. He's talking about what the, the Pharisees have already done and some of his interactions with them other statements that he's going to make about them and the way that they've uh, interacted with him, whether they've accepted him or not, all of that kind of thing, he's, he's packing into this phrase here, this adulterous and sinful generation. The choice is yours. Are you ashamed of me or not? We, we actually see this idea come up in uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, in which Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? Because it's the power of God unto salvation. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Romans, Romans 1.16. The only reason I can quote that is it was our, our motto in uh, my youth group when I was growing up. But that idea, that, that choice, are you going to be ashamed of Christ or not? Paul is saying, no, I am not ashamed of him. Because I know that, that the gospel, that Christ is the power of God to affect these things. And so it's worth me giving up my life. It's worth me giving up my, my self-determination, my own choices and abilities, so that I can follow him. Or the other option is to be ashamed of him. Nope, nope, not worth it. I don't, I don't want to. I don't want to deal with the, the negative press, the bad vibes, the, the insults, the difficulties, the whatever it might be. It's very easy to say, no, it's, it's not worth it because of the challenges and difficulties I face. Yet he's already said, you've got to take up your cross. <laughs> and, and I told you, that's not, you, you have to endure an annoying neighbor. That's, you have to die to self. That's the choice that's being presented. If, if you decide, you know what, it's not worth it because in the short term, it's too hard, it's too difficult, it's not pleasant, Jesus is saying, hey, when, when the Son of Man, which is a, a loaded prophetic term, I'll, I'll get to that in just a moment, when the Son of Man comes, he'll be ashamed of you if you were ashamed of him. If you were ashamed of him in, in this life, you're not getting into the kingdom. I mean, that's, that's ultimately what we're dealing with. This, this idea of the Son of Man, um, it, it simply, it's used over and over and over throughout the Old Testament, and it simply means a human, a, a person. But to, to get the idea of how Jesus is using it, you've got to go to Daniel uh, chapter 7 and verse 13. Let's, let's go ahead and turn there and take a look at Daniel. Now, I will admit and acknowledge that prophecy, some of the Old Testament prophecies, they're challenging. They're hard to, to deal with and process through. Um, but this is, this is one where there's a very clear connection being made. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. It says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days. Now, I'm, I'm going to pause and, and let this be known. You know, this is working through some prophecy. This idea of son of man is the coming Messiah, the one that, that is promised and declared. The Ancient of Days is referring to God himself. So, in this, one like the Son of Man, that's the Messiah, is coming up to the Ancient of Days. 
And he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. We're, we're pointing to the future, to, to the eschatology, to the end times, that idea of Jesus is saying, hey, when I, when I come in the glory of of my father with the holy angels when all of these old testament prophecies about the coming of messiah are fulfilled that's when this is really going to matter that's when this makes a huge difference so the question is is it worth it is is it worth a little bit of annoyance and suffering pain Mm. is it worth giving up yourself denying yourself, taking up your cross to follow him. Because that's really the choice that's being given. And it's, it's a flat out, here you go. You get to decide. If you want, if you desire, if you say, you know what, this is important and I'm going to make the effort and take the action to do this, here's the results. If, on the other hand, you say, you know what, it's not worth it, I'm not doing that, I I like my life. I'm going to save my life. I'm going to take care of my own self and do my own thing. Here's the results. That's what he's laying out throughout all of this. And that gives us this question. Jesus, in this, is, is declaring yet again that he is the Messiah. He is the promised one. Those prophecies from the Old Testament, they're pointing directly at him. You crowd You disciples, you have to make a choice. You have to make a decision. Which way are you going to go? What are you going to do? There's there's lots, uh, obviously, lots of end times implications. But I I don't think that Jesus at this point is trying to teach a whole lot about that as much as simply make it be known that all of that Old Testament prophecy is what matters. That's what we're focused on. That's what's coming. The choice is yours. What are you going to do about it? Now, I already mentioned that we know what's coming up. We, we know that the disciples, they're going to fail the test. They're going to mess up. They're, they're going to deny. They're going to be ashamed. They're going to run away. Things aren't exactly going to go so great, which I think is part of what makes this such a, a beautiful thing. The mercy of God is so great and so rich, even though these people who hear him, He's, he's talking directly to them. We know what's about to happen. They're going to fail. But that's not the end of the story. And I, I know we're jumping ahead and we're, get, we're getting on to other things. But I, I think it's important for us to, to be aware of, you know, they're going to mess up. They're not going to get it. They're going to be ashamed. But ultimately, they give up their lives. They dedicate everything. They turn it all over to him. They deny themselves. And we know... Later on in the story, actually, these disciples, with, with the exception of Judas Iscariot who betrays him, every single one of them is going to suffer and die for the sake of God, for the glory of Christ, to do what it is that he has called them to do. We're, we're not talking about a simple little, is it, is it worth it to get up a little bit early on a Sunday morning to go to church? Or is it, is it worth it to, to bear the annoyance of a, of a neighbor who's unpleasant? Or, 
I mean, we're, we're talking really, really significant, really, really difficult. Are you willing to give up your life, your rights, your privileges? Here, here in the United States, it is so easy to, to focus on my own rights, my own privileges. I, I want me. And it, what is that worth? What is the value of that? Are you willing to give that up, to deny yourself and follow him? That's the choice. That's the question that Jesus is laying out to his disciples and, and giving them this opportunity. Now, you'll notice that I've included uh, verse 1 of chapter 9. And, and it can seem a little bit odd for it to be in there, and yet... It, it is transitory between what we've been looking at and what's about to happen and what's coming up. And it, it fits in this. You'll, you'll recall the, the original, when the Bible was written, there were no verses, there were no chapter breaks, none of that. It, it was intended to be read straight through. And this is connected and part of what we've been looking at. It says, and Jesus was saying to them, Part of what he's teaching them, part of what's going on through this is what he's wanting to get at right here. And he's, he's about to connect all of that together. What, some of what Jesus was saying in connection with this is, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, this is kind of... A little bit strange. Um, it's it's an interesting, difficult thing. We're going to see a lot more about it in next week as we continue on. But it is transitory and it's connected with this teaching that he's been doing. He had summoned the crowd. He was talking to his disciples. And this is part of what he's saying. So that's why I'm including it here. And yet it seems like, well, what what is that talking about? Why is that connected? He's been dealing with all of this prophetic idea and letting them know, hey, I am the Messiah. I am proving that. I've been showing that. I've been working through that. And, and I want you to know something. In fact, I'm going to continue to prove it. Truly, I say to you, some of you who are standing here, a, a few of the group that is, that is there listening to him and hearing him discuss these things, some of them are going to see something. They're not going to taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, what is that talking about? What's going on there? There is a number of people in that group who God has decided you're going to see something before you die. And that's, that's really all that it's, that it's saying. Well, who is that group? What are they going to see? What's, what's going on there? I think that one of the things to, to notice is that he's saying there's some. There's a group, which means all of them are going to die eventually. But there's a group, there's a small group, I would say there are three of them, who aren't going to die until after something has happened, after they have seen something. Specifically, until after they have seen the kingdom of God. That kingdom of God is going to be displayed to them in about a week, which is actually when we're going to be studying it. This idea of the transfiguration, I believe, is what's connected here and what's going on. Um, we're not going to continue on in this passage, but if you look um, at verse 2 of chapter 9, it says, and six days later, 
well, that is really odd for Mark to include such a specific time frame and, and to have this idea that it's completely disconnected. I think that he's tying all of this together and saying that there's a group that's going to see something, and it's actually what's about to happen in the next chapter that we're going to have to wait until next week to see. But it's this idea of the transfiguration, and that that is the uh, proclamation and the showing of the kingdom of God, and letting it be known that Jesus is the Messiah. Like, there, there's no question, no ifs, no buts, no doubts about it. Um, actually, you can go to Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, where, where Peter is going to declare those things that I saw that prove that he is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of these things. We saw it. We're declaring it. We're letting it be known. I think that that's what's going on here. That that's the thing that they are going to see that, that shows to them this idea of the kingdom of God. And it, it does say, after it has come with power, um, that is a, a, what's called a perfect participle. It's the idea of a completion. So it, it could be phrased as it having been, or it having come with power. So the, the idea is not, when is that going to happen? It's not trying to say, well, this hasn't occurred yet. It's just trying to say, in its completion, that you're going to see it. You're going to see the power, the fullness, the all of this kingdom of God. And there's, there's going to be some of you, not everybody, before you die, though afterwards you will ultimately see it. But before you die, some of you are going to get just a glimpse. You're going to get to see the completed power and authority of the kingdom of God. Namely, you're going to see, like I said, this, this is my conclusion on it, you're going to see the transfiguration of what's about to happen. And that's a, a continuation of all these prophecies and all of this stuff that has been pointing to the Christ, pointing to the Messiah. This is going to be the fulfillment of that. Jesus is exactly who they were looking for. Jesus is the Messiah. We saw last week Peter declare that and make it known. And then right afterwards, he turns around and tries to say, nope, you are wrong. You don't get to make the decision, which seems kind of backwards. We're going to see the disciples all deny Christ, turn away, run away, be ashamed of him. We're going to see everybody in this group not follow through. Like I said, that's a little bit encouraging to me because, you know, we, we have a tendency to mess things up sometimes. We fail. We don't always get it right. But, ultimately, what he's teaching here and what those disciples get after the fact, after Christ is raised again, they understand. It clicks. They get it. And they end up doing this that it's, he started off with. If you desire, if you make the choice, you say, you know what, I am going to follow him. What's that going to take? It's going to take exactly what we see the disciples end up doing. And really this brings us to the so what for us. What about you? You know who Jesus is. If, if you've been studying the book of Mark with us, you ought to know by now exactly who he is. He is the Messiah. He is the promised one of the Old Testament. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. He is the Savior of the world. But what are you going to do with that? 
This passage sets up a decision point, like I said. Going back to the very start of the section, do you wish to follow him? Do you desire to? Knowing what you know about him, what it's going to take, both the good and the bad, the upcoming cross and the ultimate coming king, what decision are you going to make? Really, this is the decision point not only of this section, but of the whole book. What are you going to do with Jesus? Up to this point, everything has simply shown who Jesus is. But now we see what he came to do, to die on our behalf. We are then given the choice, do we want to follow him, associate with him, or not? There's a famous missionary by the name of Jim Elliott, who in connection with this, once said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliott died in the jungles of South America, giving his life, his physical life, to share the gospel, the good news of who Jesus was. Very, very long story short, that tribe that killed him ended up coming to know Christ because Jim Elliot was willing to give up his life, everything about himself. Not just a few of his privileges, not just a few of his you know, personal wants and desires, but everything that he was. What about you? What about me? I don't know what God may call you to. And it's a scary thing to write a blank check, not knowing What's he going to ask? The question, though, is, do you deny yourself, give up your rights and your privileges, take up the cross, die to self, and live for him? Or do you try and hang on to that which you ultimately can't hang on to? This passage ultimately calls for a paradox. Give up your life, your very self, so that you can gain true life and what God truly wants you to be. But the choice is yours. And like I said, as I was studying through this and realizing, you know what? The choice is mine. I can be kind of like those disciples who want to take back my privileges and do things my own way. I think we all can sometimes fall into that. But ultimately, the choice is yours. Will you deny yourself, give up who you are to follow him or not? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, what a tough passage. What a difficult challenge we're faced with, this idea of denying ourselves. Lord, we, we want our creature comforts. We want our rights and privileges. We want our own way. And yet, ultimately, we have to realize that we can't have our own way and have any kind of lasting meaning purpose. But when we give up who we are, who we think we are, what we think we want, when we give up of ourselves and follow you, truly deny ourselves and take up our cross to follow you, Lord, it 
it can be scary. We do know of many who are persecuted and, and much that goes on. And yet, we also find that that is the only way to have true life, to have true meaning, to have a true point and purpose. So, Father, I pray for each one here that we would be willing to give up of ourselves, to deny everything for you, so that we can know you and serve you and live for you and ultimately live with you for all eternity. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. Thank you for what you have done. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.